Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. So welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we'll examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So let's jump into it. My guest today, um, you know, is another person that I'm always confused when people ask me, do we call you doctor or do we call you chief? He's similarly situated. I am going to welcome to the show chief doctor research, you know, all things that New England, Cambridge, Ivory League schools, uh, Dr. Brandon Jalposa. Welcome to the show. Rochelle, thanks so much for having me. And since you set it up talking about Cambridge and whatnot, I will say I was born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. So uh, Cambridge was a a big shock, but, you know, you're headed there and I'm glad I was there. So it's great to be here on the podcast. You know what? I I don't know if I really remembered Bensonhurst um, as where you you jumpstarted everything because, I mean, Bensonhurst, it was known for, um, and we're going to talk about a whole lot of things about policing, but it was known for its racial strife and, and, a, a, a nationally recognized case come out of Bensonhurst, right? When I was in uh, in high school, Yusef Hawkins was murdered by a uh, a group of kids in Bensonhurst. And uh, if you remember, he came to uh, Bensonhurst to look at a used car, and uh, a bunch of kids thought he was there as a uh, as a black man to date a white girl, and they shot him. They killed him. Yeah, that happened a few blocks from my house. And, and and we'll talk about that, particularly because some of the work that you do now is thinking about what we can do to disarm people and police and using violence as a response to whatever the issues of are 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 of the day. So tell me a little bit first about your policing career. Just a little bit of a summary for our podcast audience. And then we're gonna talk about how you switched um almost like myself and and now sit completely in academia. Um, which is not a place many of us find our, our, ourselves in um, with our with our past careers. So I was born in the mid seventies in in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and you know my mother was run of the mill Jewish girl. Um, went from high school to being a stay at home mom after meeting my dad. My dad, for his part, was a Cuban immigrant who came here in the sixties uh, by way of Miami. Uh, was drafted, served in the army uh, during the Vietnam War. Got out, came to New York, met my mom. So I'm growing up in in Brooklyn, um, in an Italian neighborhood, you know, as a as a Cuban Jewish mutt, and uh, it was a, it was a terrible time to to grow up in New York. I think in some ways it was violent. Um, you know, there was a really high crime rate. There were blackouts. There was a lot of urban unrest. Um, and then as a Jewish Cuban kid in an Italian neighborhood, it was no bargain either. Um, but with the last name like Del Pozo. I kept my mouth shut a lot of times. They, they just thought I was Italian and I could fly under the radar. But when they found out uh, that I wasn't, you know, I had to, I had to deal with some, some fights, some strife. Anyway, first person in my family to go to college. Uh, had a very lucky experience going to Stuyvesant High School, a good public high school. Ended up getting into Dartmouth. I really chose Dartmouth because it was a good school in New Hampshire. And I figured, man, it must be safe in New Hampshire as opposed to Brooklyn and Manhattan where I was literally robbed going to high school where a classmate of mine was hit and killed with a stray bullet on the way home, just playing pool in the pool hall. So after college, um, it was a different time in New York, a different time in America, and a different time in policing. There was a lot of excitement about the work that the NYPD was doing to bring down crime. There was a real appetite for it. And people were nowhere near as like critical of the practices as they were now and or even aware of them. So I thought, well, I majored in philosophy. I'm going back to my city. What can I do that would be like fulfilling? 
and I thought I would join the NYPD for a few years and then go to grad school. Well, I did go to grad school, but I never left the NYPD. I did that for 19 years. I started on patrol in Brooklyn. I commanded two police precincts. And then after doing that, you know, for a while, I, I thought I wanted to kind of run my own shop. And I ended up being the, uh, the chief of police of Burlington, Vermont, where I served for four years. It's, uh, how I met you, Rochelle. It's how I met a lot of the folks in American policing. Um, and after I left that, after I resigned in 2019, um, I, right around the time I finished my doctorate, you know, here I am as a research professor at Brown University. So I'm going to, to push you a little bit on um, your philosophies of policing from when you first started um, up until the point where you were chief and you start to make some changes. I want you to stop before the, that thing and talk to me. What were your um, philosophies about policing? I mean, you lived in New York, grew up in New York, came in underneath some of those systems. Um, what was your philosophy? It's so interesting because when I was a young cop, like my overriding goal was to make the neighborhood safe. Like I worked in East Flatbush and Flatbush, Crown Heights, and I think me and a lot of my colleagues, almost all of them, are we, we were like, listen, these are communities that have a problem with, with violence, have a problem with crime. And we had this like resident in our mind that we were working for. Um, and we wanted to make the community safe for that person and their family. Uh, these are mostly all black communities. And I felt like I was working for these black communities. But I will say this. The answer was always enforcement. It was always arrest. It was always, uh, you know, a really aggressive approach. And um, no one, I mean, that was what we were inculcated with, and that was what we used, and nobody thought differently, right? And I was like a 20, you know, 24-year-old cop, maybe 23. And I was also like an infantry officer. Like, I, I paid for college with the Army National Guard and went into the infantry. It was my mindset. And by the time I became a chief, I was like, whoa, you have all these young American cops, like, growing up this way, getting into the profession. And if you don't, like, guide them, they're going to end up just assuming, like, you know, they're hammers, everyone's a nail, and the answer is just enforcement. And, I mean, I've come so far from believing that these days. Well, you know, I grew up um, much like you. I'm a, a little bit more mature and seasoned than you are. Um, but I grew up, you know, grew up literally in the policing industry as my one and only career um, for from the age of... 21, much like yourself, I was 21 when I started the police department, had barely turned 21. Um, so could legally own a gun and didn't have to get a waiver. But I grew up in a procedural policing um, philosophy and approach and institution. It was, there are these laws the that we enforce the laws. There's, you know, discretion was for the occasional uh, fairy tale kid that we see on TV about, oh, you know, someone is committing a retail theft or something of that nature, and you send them home with a stern talking to, or you pull them over in a vehicle, and you don't want to add to their misery or woe, or maybe you just want to go home that day early and don't want to get stuck with the paperwork. So discretion was more a, a matter of convenience versus it's, it's public good. Right. We didn't use it in that way. We were a law, quote unquote, and order society. And we believed a lot in the, you know, we, had, we hadn't quite gotten into the whole broken windows theory or CompStat stuff of policing that occurred um, in the, the early 90s and then on into the 2000s, particularly with CompStat and, and things like that. And, you know, all from your, your place of origin, New York. Um, police departments, where a lot of policies and trends came out of that about how we police across the nation. It was either New York or LA. We were following both of them as the East Coast or the West Coast anchors. So when you grow up in a place like New York, a behemoth, the largest police department in the nation, municipal police department, rivals the, you know, some countries, entire national police departments, um, how do you then find yourself saying in Burlington, Vermont, wait a minute, I can't have officers doing the things that I used to do thinking that was the norm, um, to changing how you might go about this work 
and who it might affect? That's a great question. Um, you know, New York City, its peak staffing had about 65,000. Oh, I take that back. Had about 55,000 employees, about 40,000 sworn and 15,000 unsworn. Um, so you're right. Like only New Delhi rivals its size as a municipal police department. When you're in an agency that big, just even if you're a precinct commander, and I commanded two precincts, you're still pretty insulated from um, directly interfacing with everyday members of the community. Like you go to your community board meetings, um, you walk around your, your precinct and talk to folks. But if folks have concerns or um, a beef or a problem or they sue you, like you're not, you're not really uh, where the rubber meets the road when it comes to those interactions. But then when you go to a place like Burlington, and I went there just because it was up in New England, not too far from, from Dartmouth. I love the outdoors up there. Um, it's a small city in comparison. It's, it's about 45,000 people, about a 200,000 metro area. And there's no escaping direct contact uh, with the public. And I, by escaping, I don't mean like, don't take the job if, if, if you don't um, enjoy interacting with them, but you can't dodge the consequences of police work. You are not arresting someone's son. You are arresting your neighbor's son. You are not, uh, you know, giving discretion to one group of people. You are giving discretion to this neighbor over that neighbor. And if people have an issue and they come to talk to you, there's no, Hey, listen, talk to, talk to public affairs. They're talking to you, the chief. And I think that was an important reckoning. Um, that, that accountability, you know, I think sometimes it can be beleaguering and go a little too far, but it should be more of the norm in policing and not less. And in a big agency, you could put several layers between you and your critics in a way that really like prevents you from having to be self-aware or introspective about how you police. You know, as, as I heard you talking just now, um, of course, Charlottesville is about the same size, 49,000 um, individuals. Of course, there's this swell because UVA sits here and Albemarle is the county in which Charlottesville sits in, right? So most people think of all of that as Charlottesville, but Charlottesville is only 10.1 square miles. And then it's surrounded by 140 something or 170 something square miles, which is Albemarle, where the majority of UVA sits, although they do have properties in the city and where all the vineyards and wine, um, wine um, places are. When I grew, grew up in policing, I remember in 1988, um, the mayor in Pittsburgh was running on this concept of community policing. And the concept of community policing for him was there were 88 neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh, and he wanted one officer who was dedicated to one of those neighborhoods. So he wanted 88 community-oriented police officers. In other words, that's how they thought it should be implemented. We just have one person who goes in there and you know what? Community policing is not um, a philosophy or an approach. It's a program. And, and actually, if we were to be honest in policing, it still is, right? The, the concept of community policing, when they say, what is your community policing philosophy? That is a program, um, what you're asking me about versus how do we go about the business of relating to community? How did that change? Where, like you said, somebody like yourself, you're in in New York, where community policing is, you know, a very different way in which it operationalizes than, say, in Burlington, Vermont. It's funny to hear you talk about the size and character of Charlottesville, because, you know, just following your trajectory in the news and you and I talking you know, it really did feel the same, like the successes and the triumphs and the failures, they're all up in your grill. There's no insulation. Right. And I think that's a much I, I'd say in some ways, being the commissioner of the NYPD is a, is a harder job. It's a six billion dollar operating budget. It's 24 seven. It's New York. But in some ways, it's harder to be the chief of a place like Burlington or Charlottesville, where there is no insulation from the public when it's good when everything's firing on all cylinders there's nothing more gratifying when it's tough it's very very draining so what you talked about in community policing in pittsburgh you're talking about 88 officers assigned to 88 neighborhoods that's not necessarily lip service if if those officers have the resources and the authority to shape what goes on in other units that shape what goes on in the response to crime 
Um, I see you on this podcast or video here shaking your head no, because I'm sure it wasn't. It was just this thing you did to say you were doing community policing, right? When the NYPD tried neighborhood policing um, in around 2014, 2015, they took each of the 77 precincts and divided them up into four beats and assigned two officers to each beat. And they said that those officers, by the structure of their job, would have most of the day off the radio, not sent to assignments. What they tried to do, and, and I think the verdict is out and a little skeptical, is they tried to say, well, the officers weren't just there to uh, uh, you know, be window dressing. They were the point people in problem solving. They were the ones that would go back to other units and say, there's a problem on this block. How do we solve it? This woman has an issue. How do we address it? There's drug dealing going on in this park. Is there a narcotics unit that can help me with this? Let's find the right lasting solution. I just wonder how that works out in practice. I'm, I'm, you know, it would be a miracle if it finally happened. But what you said is right. It has to be a philosophy baked into, baked into every unit, baked into the strategy itself, baked into the training, baked into the performance evaluations, um, and it rarely is. So I'll, I'll lastly say in Burlington what I had the opportunity to do, uh, and it's just a it, – there's a bunch of things. We talk for hours, but stick cops out on foot for hours and hours at a time. Let the community know these are your officers there to solve your problems. And then follow up with those officers. What are you hearing out there? And what does the department need to do to help that community get to where it needs to be? Like, you know, in a, in a city the size of Burlington, you, you could get away with that, I think. And I think we had some good progress. Um, I think the way we addressed the opioid crisis was very community oriented. Maybe we could discuss more of that. But if you want to scale that up to a place like Pittsburgh or New York City, it can't just be cops in a neighborhood. It's got to be so much more. Otherwise, it's just window dressing. Right. And, and I keep telling people, quit romanticizing and lionizing that beat officer from the 1960s and 70s, because we hear a lot of people say, I just want my beat officer back. He knew everybody's name. He was amazing. And I'm like, quit lying. They did not have a philosophy of diversion, of community well-being, or even, you know, um, addressing crime and you know, the police being the catch basin of all things as a public health issue, which we're going to get into um, later because that is your research and your work. It's a very novel approach to how we might defeat crime um, and almost in some ways antithetical to the current narrative that's right now. Um, I'm going to give you a line um, I watched um, MSNBC, it was painful. And not that because I don't love MSNBC, it was painful because they had um, Bill Bratton on. And, you know, Bill Bratton is the former commissioner in New York, but also in LA, two very large cities that we talked about. And they also had uh, Dr. Cedric Alexander on, who is the former first public safety director of Minneapolis Police Department. Um, former president of Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. And he had just written this op-ed that said, police can defeat crime. I proved it as a top cop of LA and New York. And then he goes, what did I learn from it? And he talks about Britain's Sir Robert Peel, which basically had nothing to do with how he accomplished these things. But what he says in there is, is back to this old broken windows theory uh, policing, um, which he basically says is neighborhood policing. And what he says is that um, if you take care of the little things, if you don't let people get away with the little crimes, and he reiterated this in 2023, like public urination, he named that. He named jumping the turnstile. So it lets you know how far gone and far removed he is from these. He's talking about these um, social disorder, like the unsheltered or the unhoused, you know, and the fact that they're maybe blocking someone's entrance to a business or a store. Um, he's like, you know what? You crack down hard on all of those things. It sends a message to the hardened criminal that if we're cracking down on the public urination or the panhandling, he goes on to the panhandling, aggressive panhandling, it's surely going to stop the shootings and the robberies and the carjackings and the murders. 
because we send the message that we're tough on crime. What's your response to that? It's so interesting to watch um, folks that came to police leadership in the 90s wrestle with the ups and downs that have landed us where we are today. Because there was this golden moment in uh, the late 90s, right up to the turn of the century, early 90s to the late 90s to the turn of the century, where um, crime was so high that decent police work made a big difference. And I liken it to to spreading a bag of sand in your living room. If you take a 50-pound bag of sand, cut it open, and throw it around your living room, you can't live there. You can't sit on your couch. You can't, like, sit on the floor. You can't walk around. It's going to be very uncomfortable, literally. Getting the first 40 pounds of sand out is just elbow grease, right? Getting that last 10 pounds of sand out of your living room is going to require either, um, like, surgery or tearing your living room apart or doing things that, like, make it a miserable place to be. Right? Could you imagine trying to get that, that last 10 pounds? And I think crime went to such a low point that as we applied these 90s philosophies to today, we were applying these like very coarse measures to something that needed to be done very finely. And it went way, way too far. So I will say, though, when we talk about public order, urination, things like that, as we know, the jury's out on the extent to which those deter more serious crimes. It's possible you'll get somebody wanted for – if you for a warrant for something serious when you stop them from urination, turn cell jumping. That's the exception. It may happen. But I think what we can't lose sight of, on the other hand, we, we can push back at, at Commissioner Bratton's view that you got to hammer the little things because they stop the big things and still acknowledge that for people living in communities across America, Urination in the street as you're trying to walk home is a problem. Getting catcalled when you're walking past the corner by some guys who are drunk is a problem, right? Um, loud parties are a problem. And you solve them not to hammer those people to like stop the next murder. You learn to regulate them in a way that allows like people to use public space fairly and enjoyably. That's not broken windows theory. That's just saying in a democracy like – Everyday people should have fair access to public space without like contending with all these forms of like harassment and annoyance, right? And one doesn't preclude the other. And I think that if you lean too hard on the hammer it to stop the murder aspect, you're on shaky scholarly ground and you're probably doing it for the wrong reason. You should do it just uh, in, a, in, a, in as least a, an impactful way as possible, you know, an intrusive way as possible to just like help communities flourish. And help set the conditions that it polices itself, not that you're using it as enforcement. Right. So I think that's where we really agree, right? I think that the the issue becomes when you're attempting to think about public use of public spaces and you don't want those contested, right? Everyone should have free use and free um, the ability to enjoy those public spaces. That's a, a social issue we need to address versus a criminal issue that we need to address. And that's not saying that you don't address them both. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that sometimes we continue to use the only thing we think we know is law enforcement to address those social issues. And the way we criminalize drug use, the way we've criminalized um, poverty, the way we've criminalized the uh, uh, mental health, and the way we've criminalized people who are un unsheltered, unhoused, the way we've criminalized people who you know, are poor and hungry. Um, but you have been working on something um, that's different. You say, listen, we need to think about being able to off-ramp interactions through a public health lens when police encounter individuals who may not be in the space that Bratton says that they're in but maybe more in the space of why do we have aggressive panhandling, right? Why do we have public urination? It's not always because someone can't hold, you know, is just, you know, um, urinating in the streets. Do we have enough facilities? Are they unhoused? Like, where, you know, what do we do about the person who's washing up in the local restaurant bathroom, right? They they don't want that to be part of the the showering facilities. Um Talk me through the, the grant that you're working on and the research that you're now doing and leveraging through an academic lens 
to address some of these problems. Yeah, what you're talking about is exciting to hear because I think it, it's a really compelling way to make some progress in America. Um, you know, because there, so there are these behaviors that the government has a, a legitimate interest in regulating, and we want the government to care about these behaviors. We want the government to care about, like, again, the behaviors that make it very stressful, difficult, dangerous, or, you know, annoying, or you're subject to just use fairly, like public spaces, right? But we've built it up so that the main response is just arrest and either a fine or incarceration or criminal charges, right? It just doesn't have to be that way. I mean, the New York City Charter for the Police Department, it goes back to the 60s. When you look at the document they wrote in the 60s that charters the NYPD, it says right in there, guard the public's health, right? It, it specifically ascribes that duty. And what public health is, you know, for listeners, it's, it's a catchphrase, like community policing. Let's be honest. It's a catchphrase people throw around as something that's going to fix everything or solve a problem or you're wrong. And the answer is community policing. You're wrong. The answer is public health. Aside from its political use, public health is the idea that there are things you can do at the community level that have an overall effect, a community level effect, almost like a, a tide lifting all boats of increasing the community's health increasing the community's resiliency, lowering the amount of death, lowering the amount of illness, lowering the amount of affliction, right? And it's not just doing it like one person at a time, like a doctor in the doctor's office with a patient. It's doing things that, um, that elevate entire communities. That's what makes it public health instead of personal health, right? And when you think of what police chiefs talk about, when they talk about um, their grand aspirations, they don't say, I want to stop people from getting killed on this one city block, or I'm going to create the safest neighborhood here in the sub part of my city. I mean, maybe they do that in private by just catering to the wealthy or one particular ethnic or racial demographic. But when they talk their biggest game, chiefs of police talk about lowering death, lowering injury, lowering illness and affliction in entire cities. And not just doing it piecemeal, but big strategies that do it for everyone. The second they start talking that way, they're talking about public health. And so why not look at some of the tools that make public health work, right? And one of those things I'm researching with the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is addiction not only kills 107,000 people a year through overdose, but it drives so much crime, right? It drives petty theft, it drives burglary, it drives robbery, it drives sex work, it drives a lot of domestic violence. It creates homelessness, which then leads to a whole bunch of other criminal infractions. If we can attack substance use disorder using science and medicine through police contacts as well as every other type of contact, you're going to save lives and reduce crime. So we got to get off the arrest bandwagon for that, for addiction. doesn't work. It's never worked. In fact, data shows it actually increases subsequent overdose and start saying, all right, this police encounter is going to be a way to link this person with effective treatment so that we're not only saving their life, reducing overdose, but we're also reducing criminal activity when they get their life back in order. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, you know, so that's one way. Think about um, domestic violence, domestic violence courts, right? We have entire courts that deal with intimate personal violence, domestic violence, um, and things of that nature. And one of the, the keys to that is public health interventions, right? It's not just, you know, before, first we never locked anyone up for, for, for violence, you know, in intimate personal violence um, or domestic violence. We used to never lock anyone up, right? We always sent the guy on his way, told him to walk it off. Not, I mean, you know, didn't have all the data behind us, but Nine times out of 10, he came back and the violence was worse than before because the police got called and there was an intervention. There's all this embarrassment to it. There's a reminder, I'm going to put you back in your place. There's power structures at risk. Then we went to 
mandatory arrest. Um, and then we went to some de departments went to mandatory arrest with these wraparound services, anger management, drug and alcohol, family dynamic counseling. But there was also a punitive component too, because you were paying for your own counseling. You paid for your own rehab. It wasn't like these services were being provided for free. And again, we, we saw that these weren't effective because you now add financial burdens to families, um, less likely to testify. You're the, the person who is the primary um, financial support is being taken out of the, the, the system and money is being diverted to systems instead of families and institutions. We found all of these issues. Could we address things like violence in the community the exact same way? Um, that you say we could possibly look at drug addiction as a public health outcome. Yeah, I mean, listen, ultimately shootings and homicides are like the archetype of a public health problem. It, it not only ends um, a person's life or mortally injures them or injures them in a way with like lifelong debilitating and traumatic effects, but it affects families. It affects uh, entire communities when you know that shootings are happening around you and you may recall, like my colleagues and I did some research, it came out uh, 10 months ago, that says in like the most violence afflicted neighborhoods in like Chicago and Philadelphia, military age men suffer many times greater risk than if they had literally fought in war in Iraq or Afghanistan. If war is traumatic, fighting to survive at home at three times the risk is that much more traumatic. So it's definitely a public health problem. And like I said, the consequences go beyond the individual victim and they affect families, communities, neighborhoods. And yeah, so the, so listen, I, I'll preface it by saying there's plenty of room for arrest, right? If someone's out there shooting their second, third, fourth person, shooting anyone, getting involved in gunfights, like arrest and prosecute that person, right? But the young men predominantly like getting into that lifestyle through peer pressure, through not feeling like they have alternatives, who like see themselves edging closer and closer to violence. Like there are definitely in, in the same way that you stop someone from escalating their substance use, or you stop someone from trying some cigarettes to smoking a pack a day, or you stop someone from engaging in behavior where they're drinking a drink or two a week to a drink or two an hour. You want to stop that. Those are all public health related problems. You want to stop that cycle of violence before it ensnares the next generation. That the research is still being developed because it's a new thought, a new way of thinking. I'm going to a gun violence conference that addresses this in Chicago in a few weeks. But it de is definitely susceptible or responsive to a public health approach. If I had the answer exactly step by step, you know, I'd be like selling it to the world and, and retire. But um, I'm, I am issue, I'm very conscious of issuing you a promissory note. But the answer goes far beyond just locking up shooters, right? It goes, it goes to breaking the cycle of violence. And, and we're going to figure out better ways to do that in the next few years. We're finally investing in that in the way we should have been beyond simple pilot projects. Yeah. And I know you talk about that. Like, yes, the way to start is a pilot project, but we can't stay in perpetual pilot project mode because then that's what happens. The little things that... I, occur in these little petri dishes and they never get out of them right and that's a problem and and i don't know if you know this but um you know that's what my dissertation was on what happens and how do you navigate violent communities um in a way that most of the world is says is maladaptive or antisocial but in that community it may actually be pro-social and adaptive and resilient um, and how do we tap into that approach and how do we look at trauma? Um, you know, just like you say, a, a veteran, you at least got VA services that might be able to help you, although our veterans administration systems have a lot of challenges and we really do need to put more money into places like that. But if this isn't a police problem and we all agree this is not. How do, you, how do you then, because now the tension becomes, um, and people use the wrong language, how do you then say that the militarized budgets and equipment and buildings and facilities and cars 
that we spend lots of money, you know, a, a place like Charlottesville, you know, they have a hundred budget, a hundred and say 20 officers. They've got a $20 million budget, $20 million budget for 49,000 individuals, a $20 million budget. And so people say, well, wait a minute. They use the word defund. I think what they people want is a reallocation of resources that allow people to build capacity to do the other work that police shouldn't be doing. So how do you have that conversation? Because the officer is going to come back to say to you, you know, Doc, yeah, you were chief. Yeah, you understand that. But, you know, the crime is going up. We need more of us to do this work because the crime is going up. And we will, you know, your hug-a-thug programs, your social justice or your your socialist programs to, to, to make people feel better that, you know, this whole public health thing, um, I can, I can make the public healthier by locking everybody up. If only it hasn't worked. I mean, you end up, you, you can definitely, and, and I, I want to restate, right. There's a role for traditional police work under a lot of circumstances. If it worked as well as the, um, the law and order crowd said it did, uh, we, we would have a fraction of the crime that we have today. And you can't just say, well, that's because Philly and all these places have inept socialist prosecutors. Like there was a problem with all of this, like when the prosecutors are going gangbusters, throwing the book at everyone, right? It, it wasn't um, solving the problem. I think one of the differences is understanding, in my mind anyway, you'll very rarely hear me re refer to your eye as former law enforcement or refer to the profession as law enforcement, it is policing. Policing, and policing is a lot different than law enforcement. Law enforcement is one of the things that police do, but going all the way back to like Bittner and um, folks in the 70s and 60s, the original soci the OG sociologists of policing, um, they will tell you that even back then, most of what policing was, was not law enforcement. It was uh, just wrestling with a bunch of different problems in the community. And when it went off the rails is when they just tried to put everything into the law enforcement bucket, right? And, you know, if if cops are going to insist that policing is nothing but all law enforcement all the time, they're going to have a hard time convincing me that they're right. Because it just, it, it from drugs to uh, to violence, it just has not worked that way right and yeah sure you could like take all of the violent folks out of a community and incarcerate them relentlessly from the slightest violent offender to the most serious one like you're going to end up like gutting that community in the process of doing so right you're taking like so many family members and members of the workforce out of that community really disrupting things you know and and it's interesting you talked about like um the difference in perspective you're going to spend some time uh at Harvard, Tommy Shelby is an African-American political philosopher uh, at Harvard, and this is his title. He wrote the book Dark Ghettos, and in it, he talks about exactly what you're saying, which is um, a lot of the behavior that we see as like destructive and antisocial is 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 um, an attempt by, for of people to like navigate very very difficult circumstances, right? And he asks the question like, how much of this is patently immoral? He's a philosopher. He thinks a lot of it actually is immoral, but he still says a lot of it is just an attempt by young people to navigate like impossible circumstances. And you gotta, I don't know a cop with who polices with his or her eyes open in a city like Pittsburgh or New York for 20 years that doesn't come to that conclusion. You had your head in your, in the, in, I was going to say you had your head someplace else. You've had your head in the sand if, if you don't realize that at some point. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you um, on this. The, 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 the last question that I would ask you, um, because you've just been so gracious with your time then, um, when we talk about health outcomes um, and making, you know, that we are to guard the public's health, then how do you deal with the trauma that the profession of policing has had on communities of color to the point that it has affected health outcomes in those, those communities. Because we can't just leave them out of the narrative. 
there's been a lot of damage. I'm listening to a podcast right now called The Set um, about the Mullen Commission in New York. And um, for people who don't know that, I mean, at one point during the 19, the early 1990s, uh, Michael Dowd, who I had studied um, for years as a person who studies my profession, but also about the ethics of policing and how corruption occurs, a lot of what was occurring in New York in the 30th precinct, which I'm now getting my little lingo down. I wasn't from New York, but the 30th precinct. A lot of what was occurring in those communities was trauma being inflicted on those communities um, because of numbers, of statistics. People needed to have you know, body counts. They needed to have numbers. A lot of this was driven by the policies you know, from the Uniform Crime Bill, um, the three strikes you're out rules, uh, the war on drug that came, drugs that came in the 80s under Reagan and, and things of that nature. So there was decades of work that was occurring. Um, and then the stop and first practices that were occurring under Giuliani and Bratton, right, that were ruled, you know, unconstitutional because people were being driven by the numbers. So if we take someplace like New York and then move that throughout, concentrically throughout the United States, the policing itself has caused a lot of trauma in the communities. How do you heal that kind of, what are the type of ways in which we need to think about that differently as we address other kinds of social ills like the opioid addictions, like mental health? But, you know, and maybe this is new territory and maybe we write a paper on this together at some point. How do we deal with that trauma? Because um, that is just like PTSD, people don't want to see the police behind them. They don't want to see the lights go on. Fear comes to their heart, just like someone who has been in war. Um, all of the heart racing, you know, paranoia, anything else that comes along with that. How do you do that? deal with that? I think that, I mean, start by minimizing the amount of trauma you cause, right? But another thing, and it's so interesting to talk about health outcomes, there is an interesting analogy in medicine. It's this concept that was in the word for it came into use about a hundred years ago um, called iatrogenesis. What that is in medicine is, is a harm that comes of um, a well-intended intervention. So if you give somebody chemotherapy, you might prolong their life and cure their cancer, but they might lose some teeth. They might lose their sex drive. Their hair might come out. Those are not desirable. Those are the harms of chemotherapy. The chemotherapy is to stop cancer, right? You could, do an, um, an appendectomy, save someone's life because they're, they're stricken with appendicitis, but then they might get an infection. That's an iatrogenesis. Uh, another example is just negligence. Like you're supposed to amputate the left leg, but you amputate the right leg, right? You, the doctor didn't go in there going, ha, 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 I'm going to leave the cancerous leg on and take the good leg. The doctor screwed up. So what I'm going to posit is it's the best policing that's even really well done and thoughtful is still going to have a lot of iatrogenesis. You are still going to be disrupting families when you make arrests. You're still going to be using force on people in a way that's going to traumatize them and the people around them. And just knowing that like policing is set up to cause that trauma, I think changes the, the, the calculus, right? You can't just measure, oh, we've made all of these arrests and our murders are down, or, you know, we've issued all these tickets and drivers are driving more slowly. You have to go, First of all, one step further and say, all right, um, is the slower driving reducing roadway death? Is it reducing roadway injury? Are all these gun arrests and shooting arrests reducing the number of shootings, reducing the number of murders? Now you're getting toward health outcomes. And then you need to go one step further still and say, I'm going to expand what I'm measuring to look at like, how resilient is my community? Meaning, um, you know, and this is harder to measure, but, but trauma degrades resilience. And resilience is like, even when something bad happens in a community, the next day or three days or a week later, the kids are out at the park again. People are out on the sidewalks at night. Uh, people aren't jumpy and nervous and full of fear. That's a resilient community, right? And I think policing needs to really have its pulse on a community's resilience. And if people are nervous or jumpy or um, fear is in their heart when they see the police or the police are out there with the sirens and lights blazing at all hours of the night, like, yeah, you, 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 you 
you may be getting more arrest numbers and you may even be reducing um, certain health indicators of violence or injury, but you may be traumatizing folks, right? And you really have to acknowledge the difference between just doing that gratuitously, doing it because it's the way you've always done it, doing it because tough crap, we're the police, and saying, no, 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 we're the police, we're always going to be doing these things that are kind of going to be traumatic or have some bad side effects, but we want to limit them. We want to make sure that we're only doing them when necessary. We want you to believe in good faith that we're doing them in order to overall help the community. And we're going to constantly be taking stock of this and making sure that our presence isn't so heavy that we're doing it unnecessarily. We're not engaging in unnecessary procedures, right? And I mean, I think that's a start. I think that if you really, really do that in good faith, if you can convince a community you're doing it, I think that they become more resilient. They'd be a lot more receptive to policing. And I think I'm gonna have you back on another show because the, the first thing I started thinking about is the course I'm teaching right now um, is policing black bodies. And our system of policing is out of um, a very punitive, um, heavy handed way of, you know, slavery. And the and so we, we modeled a lot of that. We'd like to think we came out of England and Sir Robert Peel, we, we cite that a lot um, in terms of what's on the wall, but our artifacts of violence and, and arrest tell us something differently. So I, I, I want you to come back to talk about that. Um, I appreciate that your willingness to, to, to think about this. The type of work you're doing um, can disarm, um, both literally and figuratively, um, the way we go about this work, right? We're starting to look at it as authentically, supposedly what we all say is a helping profession, a serving profession. Um, I'm excited to see where these conversations go with you. I'm excited to see where your research goes, but I'm more excited that we have people like you who have chosen to continue to engage when it would have been very easy to disengage from the policing profession. So I'm excited. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Your final thoughts before I let you go, Chief Dr. Uh, Brandon Del Pozo. Um, yeah, and for the longest time too, I was going with the, uh, you know, the Italian until I, I heard about it too. Uh, yeah. The Italian, you know, because sometimes we need to, to we, we do find ourselves some, in places where people will judge us just either allow us access or deny us access based on appearance, based on names, based on gender identity. What are your final thoughts before I let you right. go? Well, listen, I was a, a Cuban Jew in a police department that was uh, predominantly Irish and Italian, but that is now like so much more diverse. It's amazing. South Asian Muslims are the fastest growing demographic in the NYPD because it truly is an immigrant city. Um, I really love the, the work I'm doing uh, across substance use, violence, public health responses to, you know, what are thought of as police problems. I will say, though, like it, it, it can't just be window dressing. The hardest thing is to take what I think are really good, sound ideas and bring them all the way down to the street level where like people buy into them, where they make a difference. That's hard. Like that's I can have all the good ideas in the world. Like if a city's not willing to put its money, literally put its money where its mouth is. Um, and stay with it for the long haul over several mayoral administrations. Like this is all a thought exercise. And I know you feel that too. I mean, I know you've really dealt with that uh, personally and professionally, and I'm glad you're still in the arena as well. You know, um, the easiest way to have a long, uninterrupted ascending police career is to just like reinforce the status quo. You, you were never that type of person. So, um, you know, but there's still some, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I'm, I'm glad to, to be in the, in, the, in the fight with you. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Del Pozo. It has been absolutely my pleasure. And until our paths cross again, be well. Thank you. So for this week's end of shift report, I really want to focus on something that Dr. Del Pozo, formerly chief um, Del Pozo said. He said in the 1960s, the New York Police Department charter specifically said, that they were to guard the public health. Guarding the public health. You know, I think we've come a long way from that kind of mantra, that kind of 
thought process and thinking. If we could get back to guarding the public health and not this protect and serve kind of motto, the not the warrior versus the guardian mentality. If we get away from what are the things that we are doing in policing that are a detriment to the public health, I think I know we could have better outcomes with police and community interactions. If we each held on to guarding the public's health and not some broken windows theory, you know, every turnstile person that every person jumps a turnstile, everyone who urinates without understanding the backstory behind a public urination, without citing someone for sleeping in public property or arresting them for trespass who are unsheltered or unhoused. If we thought about every time we had an encounter as a public health encounter with a public health outcome, I think policing in the United States could have had a different start, but more importantly, has the opportunity for a different start today. So thank you to our audience for listening. Please tell someone about the show. Don't forget to subscribe, download, follow, rate, comment on Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. I'm going to catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O Line Media. Get the Mean O Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.